You never know who you're going to see. Be one guy one-on-one -on -one my whole career. What you're going to hear. We got a lot of desperate people in the city. Or what they've got to say. When you can take people inside of a crime. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Open Mic. I have Kevin Dietz. Good morning, Kevin. Hey, Mike. How are you? Good. Excited to bring on Dennis Archer Jr., who is, of course, the son of our former mayor and Supreme Court Judge Dennis Archer. He's the former chairman of the Detroit Chamber of Commerce. He's currently the president of Archer Corporate Services and the CEO of Ignition Media Group. And we will talk to him about what all those things are. And so I'd like to welcome him to the podcast. Good morning, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Good morning, Dennis or Denny. You go by either. You Thanks pick. for being here. My pleasure. Kevin's my man. Whenever he calls, I answer the call. <laughs> Kevin's my man too. I do the same thing. That's so weird. <laughs> so before we get started, I don't know if you knew this or know this. Our fathers were law school classmates. Oh, Detroit College of Law. Yep. Back in the exactly. 60s. I did not know that. My dad, uh, my dad, unfortunately, is no longer with us. But, you know, when he was here, he used to, when your dad was on the Supreme Court and through his rise to fame, my dad was very proud that a, 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 a law school a companion of his did so well and made it so high up in the ranks. And uh, he used to always talk fondly about your dad. And when your dad was running for mayor and I would see him at fundraisers, we used to talk about it. So a uh, little family history there for it's you. Small world. Dan, Dan, your dad was the commencement speaker at my college graduation. The world's smaller. <laughs> <laughs> How's that? How is it growing up with a dad so involved and so famous? I mean, how 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 was that for you growing up? I mean, it was fantastic. I mean, you know, interestingly, my father, despite the fact that he was always busy, um, he made you know my sporting events. You know, he got up in the morning and he made uh, one of his three different varieties of breakfasts for my brother and I before he went to school. Um, and so from that standpoint, he was busy, but still very involved from a, you know, I don't know, influence or pressure standpoint. Um, I think people had, in, in one instance, people had heightened expectations of you and gave you the benefit of the doubt in many instances because of you're the son of. Uh, on the flip side of it is if when you're in politics, you obviously have people who are very much in your favor and you have detractors. And so the detractors spread that detraction, if you would, across probably the whole family, but those who are very in favor and supportive of spread that support through the whole family. So overall it was a balance, a lot of lessons learned as a son of a politician. How old were you when your dad was mayor? What age range was that? Uh, I was actually in law school myself uh, in Ann Arbor um, when he ran. And okay. so he was, uh, I was uh, in my going into my last year of law school when he was elected. Um, and then got, so I was 24, 25. Okay. So you never really lived in the Manoogian mansion? No, no. So two years after law school, I lived right there on the third floor before uh, <laughs> moving down the street uh, and out of law school. I think, Kevin, that's how we really became close because out of law school, I joined a firm called Graymark. Right. And Kevin and I have a mutual friend, Kern Smith, who, who worked there. And so that's where Kevin and I met around that same age. Well, what was it like living in the Manuga Mansion? I've never met anybody who's done that. It was fantastic. I mean, it was another one of Detroit's um, beautiful, well-kept um, historic homes. Uh, as you're aware, the Manugian family who founded Masco 
their family owned the Manugian mansion, um, thus the name of the mansion. And they, at some point in history, deeded that home and the, the property to the city of Detroit for the purpose of housing the mayor that's elected. And when my father won, uh, my mom, who's a phenomenal decorator, uh, they raised private funds, did not use any city of Detroit municipal funds, but rather raised private funds to uh, bring the house back to the state in which uh, it should have been kept. Coleman Young it was not of the best health in his last years. And so upkeeping that huge house was not a priority of his. He was focused on running the city and his health. And so it was a beautiful home, um, well-kept, a lot of great meetings and events with national and international leaders coming in and out of there. I lived there for about two years, so I enjoyed it. And then I liked it so much, I moved less than a mile down the street so I could be close. So are you still, are you still there? No, 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 I wish. So you're telling me that your mom didn't like the bachelor pad setup that uh, Coleman Young had for 30 years? Uh, yeah, she had, uh, she had minor adjustments. <laughs> That's fabulous. So before we get into what you're currently doing, I mean, you were involved, you've been involved in Detroit businesses for a long time now. Weren't you involved in one of the first restaurants that since, since, we, since Detroit's come back, um, weren't you part of a restaurant or two? Yeah. So, well, there were two. Um, there was one that I got involved in right out of law school. Uh, and in that experience, I learned everything not to do in the hospitality business. Which restaurant was that? That was called Sauce. Kevin, I don't know if you ever went, but it was down on Joseph Compton near the Rattlesnake in the Rivertown area. Okay. And uh, pretty much everything that you shouldn't do, we did. We were over leveraged, under finance, didn't have experience management. The building's physical infrastructure was poor for, to operate through the winter months. And uh, the most memorable story there was when the food critic came to lunch or dinner one day. It was so cold in the building that the staff had coats on. And then one of our servers found it uh, important to put a cherry in a glass of Chardonnay that he delivered to the food critic. So you know, at that point, guys, I, I figured that this was just going to be a lesson. So let me just take the lessons as, as they came. But fortunately, when you fast forward to 2015, when we did open Central Kitchen and Bar downtown, I took all those lessons to heart and didn't repeat any of those mistakes. And so um, we had a phenomenal team hired and a phenomenal chef before we even had a name or a lease. Uh, and we picked a great location and we raised capital from phenomenal partners and investors. And uh, in August, we'll celebrate our fifth year in, in business. And so, uh, so you're still involved with that. project? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So quick. I mean, I love that restaurant, number one. And I remember walking into it. And I didn't realize what year it was. And I'm glad you said 2015, because to me and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but that felt like the first real restaurant. I mean, we know what's happened to the Detroit restaurant scene in the last five years. We, we right. know. We're not, we don't have to go through that. But that to me felt so unique and fresh and new. And when I walked through it the first time, I thought, oh my God, I feel like I'm in New York or yeah. Chicago. Yeah, it's very interesting you say that. So, you know, one of the reasons that we landed upon a restaurant, there's a group of friends, excuse me, business partners that we take an annual trip in the summer. 
and we relax and cool out. We try to have good dinners, but we always come up with different business ideas. And out of that trip, this restaurant came out of one of those trips. And from my standpoint, as really the guy that had the initial idea, I've worked downtown, whether it was at my dad's law firm when I was in high school, all the way through present day. And I found myself when I, in the 2013, 14 time span, going to a lot of restaurants because it was what was available, not because I loved them. And, you know, Dan had bought the, moved downtown in 2010 and started that, but there was not really enough supply to uh, address the demand then and then the demand that I, I felt would come. And so we opened right around the same time as Townhouse, uh, Jeremy Sasson, very good friend of mine, and we opened within a month of each other. We would walk back and forth down Woodward to check on each other's construction to see who was going to open first. But really, well ahead of us were Mark and Dave um, over at Wright and & Company. And so I would give them credit as being really the first okay. kind of new age restaurant downtown. But since Wright and & Company and Central and Townhouse, there's 100 new entrants. And it's grown, as you're well aware, because uh, you go out to eat a lot, it's dispersed throughout Detroit. It's not just the downtown central business district. It's core. So it's in, it, it was in the top three of the first three starters. And I'm really glad you put that in perspective because it was hard when, when those type of beautiful restaurants with great food and great service and beautiful architecture and decoration. Did your mom help decorate Central Kitchen? Uh, she did not help decorate, but she definitely okay. critiqued. <laughs> I, I love the windows. I love the roof. Um, I, I, I appreciate what you did because I think be, between Wright and Company, which is another great restaurant up there on the second floor, and um, and your friend uh, Jeremy's restaurant are, are phenomenal entries. And I really do think that those spurred all the, the other girls say, oh, if they can do it, we can do it. I agree. So I'm, I'm very grateful. I'm, I'm excited. It still sounds like it's going well for you guys. Yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, with all of these market entrants um, through having to close, um, in, you know, in March, I think the, the final decree was somewhere around, the, I forget the date, 16th or 23rd. But we are up year over year, which is phenomenal financially, which is phenomenal given, you know, the, the continual increase in competition. I love the eclectic menu. I love the sushi rolls. I love everything about it. Enough about your restaurant. I'm sorry. Um but so you, you're fully closed. Are you doing any carry out right now during this pandemic? No, you, you want to know what, uh, counselor, our um, the amount of business we did in carry out uh, during the regular uh, workday did not substantiate um, staying open only to do that. Now, there are a couple of programs that are about to come online now where they're going to request Detroit restaurants to provide meals for first responders and hospital workers. So we're looking at potentially getting involved in those sort of programs. What do you think this shutdown? So some of my friends and I were talking about this recently, you know, in the last five years, the the uh, restaurant scene in Detroit has been phenomenal, like one of the shining stars among everything else that you guys and the Gilberts and everybody is doing. But the fact that they're so fresh and so new and so fragile, because they're all within five years, like you said, what do you see as the future? What do you really I know nobody can really know, but what's your guts going to happen with all these new restaurants? I mean, I, I'm hoping that everyone that was forced to close reopens. The reality of the situation is 
everybody finds themselves in a different um, financial position and you, you, you don't know what other people's financial positions are. And so I, likely just given the number of restaurants that are within a year or two years old, there probably will be some restaurants that will not reopen. Now, some of those restaurants may have been teetering on whether or not they should remain in business prior to this. And this state just may um, help them shore up their decision. Um, but I mean, I think that because landlords, the nature of our business is you have, you buy foodstuffs and, and beverages from your suppliers, you pay your staff and you pay rent. Um, everything else is very small in terms of percentage. And so landlords, at least in our instance, Bedrock is waiving rent. Uh, we have moved successfully now all of our employees to unemployment. We're working with them to ensure that they get all of the potential benefits that they can get from the federal government, local governments. And we're obviously not buying food or beverages from the suppliers. So we're at a point where there's really no, no expense and no income. And so I think as long as landlords are being fair to their tenants, I think many people find themselves just because of the nature of our business and what the P&L looks like, that most people I think should be able to come back out of this. Yeah, it, it, I mean, optimistic and, and that's great news. I'm sorry, Kevin, go ahead. Oh, no, no. I just say that it's such a tough business anyway. When you think about the margins and and really, uh, if they don't get a break on rent and and even I talked to a lot of people who own restaurants downtown and uh, the landlords were raising rents as Detroit was becoming more and more popular. It, it was tough for them uh, to meet uh, escalating rents. And so in a situation like this, uh, you know, where you are, you shut down and not only that, but you, you may not be ordering food, but you lost money on food that you bought before. Uh, and, and so the, your expenses are up. And, and so the landlord, it's, it's crucial for the, the landlords to, to, to waive that rent right now. Uh, because when, when they come back, the, there are a lot of these businesses that, that do teeter. They just can't, they can't maintain a, a long period of, of, of no, of no business. And, uh, and then to, to bring in new restaurants is, 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 is difficult. For everybody. Yeah, everything rolls downhill. But first, let me say, Mike, do you notice how Kevin has this award prominently placed just inside the screen yeah. of the fireplace? We've talked about those Emmys. I mean, that's, that's the great. Those are, those are real. Yeah. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm not going to borrow those if I ever do a podcast again. Those are fake. I bought those at the Dollar Tree. Oh, <laughs> I know better than that. With this toilet paper. No, but I think, I mean, if you look from a business standpoint, I mean, everything has a rolls uphill. So, you know, while a landlord may want to do what's right by their tenant and provide uh, some some rent relief, that landlord likely has bank covenants with their bank. And so then now they got to go to the bank and say, all right, I'm giving some leniency to my tenants. Now I need you to give me some leniency on my covenants. And, you know, then the bank has to make a decision. And so because they got a board to answer to. And so it's really, you know, as you go through this pandemic and the issues that it's calling, causing, as, as each week goes by, you begin to see how much of society in, in, in a more microscopic fashion is being affected. Yeah, how is, how is, everybody's got to eat, right? So the grocery stores are doing fine and things like that. But I was amazed. Uh, the local restaurants that I uh, was ordering, I was, we'd, we'd place to-go orders trying to help the local businesses. And uh, we we were 
all of a sudden, one by one, they were disappearing. The more high end they were, the quicker they seemed to disappear. Now, now when you go online to look, it's hard to find out who's open. Uh, suddenly, you're getting a lot of, uh, you know, we're we're closed. We're not. We're not. We can't. We're not doing it anymore. If I had to guess, I would submit to you that the restaurants that are in neighborhoods and are moderately priced are probably doing really well. I mean, for us downtown, you know, as soon as no one is going to work downtown, you know, no one's there during the lunch hour, no one's there for happy hour, and we just don't have enough people. I mean, we like to shout about that we've got a couple thousand units of apartments downtown, but I mean, that's not enough to sustain a bunch of restaurants downtown for carryout. And so those that are in neighborhoods, you can pick up a great burger, fries, you know, some sort of, you know, nowadays vegan or vegetarian option, moderately priced. I think they're going to do well because they're in neighborhoods where people live. Right. I feel, I, you know, I think you're, I, th I like your optimistic attitude. I do think there'll be some changes. And what's your sense? I mean, you know, Detroit, I, my sense, and I want to, I want to open this to you, but my sense is, you know, we've been through some hard times. We've been through the bankruptcy. We've been, you know, we're, we're just coming back. This is definitely going to hurt and be a blip, but you know, it just feels like Detroit, if anybody's going to come back with a vengeance and not let this thing beat us, it's Detroit. And what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree hundred percent. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the bankruptcy thought it had us against the ropes and we came back off the ropes. You know, we've been through many challenges over time and we seem to come back to come together. And what you see beginning to ha happen now is what happened in bankruptcy, which made for us uh, to illustrate such resilience, which is you have obviously the political leadership, but the civic leadership, the philanthropic area, the community leaders and entrepreneurs all coming together. I mean, you got not just Ford and GM agreeing to invest and make whether it's, you know, PPE or it's ventilators. You got Carhartt, you've got Dan Gilbert, who we read this morning, spent a million bucks to bring some piece of equipment from China that's going to be able to expedite the making of masks. And so once again, you see in Detroit, everybody coming together to you know, put up a united front. And so I've, I'm very confident that we'll come out of this. It's just, there will likely be, you hear people saying the term now, the new normal. There will likely be a new normal and the longer this takes to come out of, probably will paint a different picture uh, as it relates to what that new normal looks like. Which is anybody's guess. Yeah, I agree with you, Danny. The, the longer this goes, you know, we, we, we did a podcast recently. We were talking about are people going to ever handshake again? You know, right. Is that ever going to happen again? And if this goes on for a year, <clears throat> that's going to take a long time before people do that. Is it going to be the elbow bump? Is it going to be the foot bump? Um, but time, I think time will tell. Your uh, your time with the regional chamber. I mean, you know, you know, you're connected to like every business in Detroit. It seems like. W what do you think about the uh, the the money uh, that's coming in the two trillion dollar COVID relief fund? Um, are are businesses going to be able to get that? Is it going to work? Is it enough? I, what what are your what are your friends going through? I mean, I think that whether it's enough, it just we we don't know whether it's enough because we don't know how bad or how or how long this is going to be. I would suspect that. If this goes on for another four or six weeks, or if it looks like this stay at home thing could linger into June, July, I believe that there will be another uh, tranche of this package that will be released because what, what has been released thus far won't be enough. From my standpoint as a small business person, I know that you know the restaurant has applied for 
uh, all three of my businesses will apply for some sort of assistance or in the application process. Um, the restaurant, obviously, we put 44 or 45 people into unemployment. Um, at the agency, we have not done that yet, but you know, I'm in the marketing space. And so um, in marketing advertising for a lot of you know, clients, when their budget to purse strings get tight, the first place they look to cut is our area. So we would suspect that there will be some pullback in our area and then we're gonna have to make some tough, tough decisions with that business as well. And so whether it's smaller businesses like me or large billion dollar auto suppliers who have had to lay off thousands of, of folks. I mean, I have friends that have global auto supply businesses who have the same issue in Detroit in multiple countries around the world. And so for them, it's much more catastrophic. What tell us about your media group? I'm not familiar with um, I'm not familiar with it. Tell us what you do there. Well, you know, it's interesting. So back when Kevin and I met, um, you know, I was doing a lot of events. So in 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 college and through law school and out of law school, I was you know the promoter, Joe Party guy, and that business uh, counselor kind of merged into when I could no longer be on the chamber board, but I'll be also be the guy at the door taking 50 bucks to get into the club. I decided to mature that business into a more experiential marketing firm. Uh, and thus kind of Ignition Media Group was born out of that. And then when I would be doing events for clients, they would say, what do you think you can get some press around this? And so then uh, I brought a dear friend back from New York that was doing PR for a, a national, international brand called Intermix to come back and develop a PR department for us. So we now we do marketing PR events and a practice that we call strategic matchmaking, which is uh, much more of a consultative sort of practice. And that business is going well, I hope, during these times, probably a lot of hard decisions, kind of like you alluded to that, that you're gonna have to make some hard decisions for yeah, marketing. No. I, I do a little advertising, I don't know if you knew that. I know, um, I, I see you every but, now and then. <laughs> but, you know, the, I mean, that's a hard, that's gotta be a, I don't know, I can say a hard space right now, but um, because on the one hand, you have a lot of eyeballs on digital, you have a lot of eyeballs on the TV, but only certain products are being used right now. And uh, there's not a lot of people on the roads. So how are you, how are you approaching well, all that? Where we, find, where we find ourselves, our consultative practice, um, we're advising clients with us now on how to go through this. Uh, and it's not just about marketing and messaging, it's business operations, it's, how to take advantage of this downtime, how to leverage this period to come out of it being more competitive and maybe take away some market share from your competition. And so where we are advising, where it's non-core, so for some of our clients, they have programs and the programs aren't necessarily core in terms of priority, but we advise on those non-core programs. If they decide to bring funding back off those programs, we've been affected there. So, so far, so good. I mean, we've had, we've seen a little pullback, uh, nothing catastrophic in that space. Uh, we actually are onboarding another client this week, even, even during this. So um, hopefully it all comes close to balancing out when we emerge out of this. What's your general sense for advertisers or people who are out there? I mean, is your opinion that people should stay the course? They should increase advertising, decrease advertising? I mean, I think it depends on, in general, my response would be if you can afford to take advantage and try to gain market share during this period, you should do so. But that's there's a lot of caveats to that. One, 
you know, liquidity is very important during this time. So that would depend on what that business's liquidity position looks like. If you can afford to keep doing that, you don't need to pull back to build up liquidity. Then I would suggest that people still do that. It's good advice. That makes sense. So your other job as president of the Archer Group or corporate services, what, what is that about? What are you doing there? We are a marketing services business. So we're headquartered in Belleville, Michigan. We have offices downtown and 12 other geographies around the country. Um, easiest to explain, we warehouse and distribute marketing collateral for Fortune 100 companies. So anything that goes into a GM dealership uh, that is not a part, any posters, new car brochures, marketing collateral, the stuff you see next to the car on the used car lot, all that stuff comes from us. Oh, wow. so we've been doing that since uh, 2005. It's not a very sexy business, but it's a good sticky business. And we've moved from GM. We now do work for Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, Prestige Brand, Michelin, and a few other clients. How many employees do you have there? We have about 30 employees and client services. And uh, depending upon the time of year, hundreds of employees in the warehouse. What uh, impact do you think uh, the uh, postponement of the auto show will have? Uh, it's such a big event here for everybody. It seems like everybody's uh, uh, it touches everybody. Um, it, this was the first one for the summer. There's a lot of excitement. What, what, what's the feeling out there in the automotive? I think that there's, so there's two different realities. There's kind of the emotional reality, which is definitely a bummer. Um, and then there's the financial reality, which the latest numbers that I saw were that it's about a $400 million loss to the geography, you know, hotels, labor, hospitality, et cetera. You know, I was uh, probably 50-50 on the move from January to June. I think coming out of uh, the new year, being in the hospitality business, January is a very slow month, whether you are in a hotel space or restaurant space or private event, uh, etc. And so that gave us in, in most geographies, if you take out New York and Miami and LA, you come out of you, you wake up New Year's morning and you got three months of you're just really chilling out. There's nothing to do. In Detroit, we really got three more weeks into January uh, of, you know, first the workers come in and set up Cobo Hall, then the media folks come in town, then the general public comes downtown. So for three weeks, we got an extra three weeks. So it was like the Christmas holiday rolled all the way through the third week in January. With this new format that stopped, I do think it's probably better net-net for the city of Detroit and the region to be more competitive. I think more people will come visit the show. I think press uh, that were you know on the uh, on the wrote about whether to come or not because, well, do we really want to go? It's freezing. Now it's beautiful. And so I think if, if they go to June of 2021 now, I think that um, uh, I think it will be a great thing. But I think it's a tremendous loss. I think that you'll see. I mean, I've been, Kevin, you know, uh, counselor, I'll make sure you get an invite, an invite next time. But I do a, a huge, this would have been the 14th or 15th year, my big charity preview event. I have 1,500 people. They come. And so people have been calling me saying you still got to have a party, which is something I'm considering just because, again, it's something that people are looking forward to. And it'd just be a shame just to have that period go by. But I think that we're going to see as every week goes by these events that are waiting to the last minute 
make a decision. I think all this stuff is going to get pushed. If we, we could lose Dream Cruise, too, I guess, the Mackinac Policy Conference is getting pushed, right? All uh, Dream Cruise is another one. It's just a huge opportunity for, uh, you know, people to come to this area and spend money. And uh, I, I don't know where they're at if they've made a decision yet. But um, everything about the Dream Cruise, unlike uh, the Grand Prix and the auto show, is a Dream Cruise is a, is a one-off standalone event, you know, with, with the golf tournament. Uh, with the Rocket Mortgage Classic, it's in line. Like every weekend, there's a tournament. And so we got that slot because the tournament that had that slot, their contract was over. And so unless they push the whole uh, series back, that's probably likely not to happen. The Dream Cruise, though, like the Mackinac Policy Conference, if you can just find another weekend that works uh, and they push it back, people love that so much that I think people will still come out for that. You'll still get a million people to come out for Dream Cruise. I hope so. You know, you mentioned the Rocket Mortgage. You're you're a member of DGC, aren't you? I am. Yes. As am I. I think we've said hi there before in the past. Yeah. They have not canceled that event yet. Yeah. I think that. I mean, everybody look. Everyone has their fingers crossed. Um, I think. Look, I, I don't want to give any any uh, uh, predictions there. I would say my fingers are crossed too. I mean, if you look out at the course, the guys are out there even today working on the course. They have some of the preliminary infrastructure up there to start building the stands. And so uh, the club has invested millions in, in the rehabilitation of the clubhouse is going to be beautiful. So it'd be terrible not to have it. And so, you know, we'll see. I, I, you know, my buddies and I, we all, everybody volunteers for this thing. And it was such an amazing event last year, like A plus, as you know, um, you know, we, on one of our zoom calls last night with some of my buddies, somebody said, you know, they could have it and just not have spectators. Good. Because the TV revenue, I mean, I'm sure they lose tons of money in food and beer sales and everything like that. But the players could golf. The caddies could be there. Uh, they're not They're not that close to each other. There could be nobody in the stands and nobody walking. I mean, that'd be a shame. But TV may not mind that. I, I, I don't know. I mean, look, for, for the city of Detroit – and it's a tremendous, all these events. I mean, if you, the, the beautiful vistas that you see when the Grand Prix happens on Belle Isle and the helicopters are shooting down on the Belle Isle, the cameras, you see how beautiful that looks. It's great PR for the city. It would be a shame to not have, to have the golf tournament without fans. But at the same time, it, it's again, great PR for the city of Detroit. And so to have, uh, the beautiful shots of the Detroit Golf Club on international television. I would take that versus having to cancel the whole thing altogether. Thousand percent, and I've and I've heard nothing. Even though we're members, they don't let us in on those negotiations, right? Uh, whether or not that's actually going to happen or not. Um, but but yeah, like you said, Danny, fingers are crossed that that thing happens. I mean, I'm you know you mentioned what's not happening. The Tigers supposed to have opening day this week, which I've been I go to every year, which was really sad that that wasn't happening. I mean, talk about, Kevin, if that doesn't happen. I mean, is this season going to start? How do you do baseball without fans? How do you do anything without fans? Um, when, you know, June, July, eventually it's either a shortened season or because you're getting into cold months as it is on a normal season. I don't know. I It's... Someone's going to try something. I mean, the, the public is hungry for their sporting events. Uh, right. 
you know, they'd watch a chess match right now, I think, if they put one on. Uh, and I know, like, I think uh, Tiger Woods is talking about doing something with Phil Mickelson and throwing some NFL players in there as well. I, I think uh, uh, the audience, uh, the TV audience will be huge for anything that anyone tries. The problem is there's only so many sports you can you can have that also has social distancing. So you, I don't think you can I don't think you can do baseball. I don't think you can do you could do golf, though, uh, and you could uh, have you could have different athletes from different sports playing golf. Uh, and if you could find another tennis you could do, um, they, they could probably play tennis. Um, the audience will be there to watch. That's for sure. Uh, there, there could be some money to be made. It's just when and how. So I think that I think to Kevin's point, I think that you're going to see very shortly um, you talk about Tiger Woods and golf and maybe throw a couple celebrities in there to drive up viewership. You're going to start to see somebody's going to start taking advantage of, of this open lane that exists. And so that they're not perceived as being, um, you know, pigs in this unfortunate uh, environment. They're probably going to say some some percentage of the revenue is going to go to a charity to help the first responders. But I think within the next two weeks to 30 days, you're going to start seeing announcements about a number of these televised uh, events like that. What are you hearing about the, the hospitals in Detroit? I, I'm, I'm so troubled to watch the news that Detroit proper, not I'm not even talking Wayne County, Oakland County, Detroit proper um, is getting hit so hard right now. Um, and I, I know you're more in, in tune to the to the, you know, the city than I am. Um, what are you hearing and what are your thoughts on why Detroit is getting hit so hard versus some of the other suburban areas? Um, well, I'm not an expert, but just in following the, the information um, that's coming out of the news and other resources. I mean, I think that, I mean, Detroit, first of all, you have 37 percent of the city is 670,000 ish Detroiters. 37 percent live below the poverty line. 80 plus percent, 87, 88 percent are African-Americans. African-Americans are predisposed to diabetes, high blood pressure and other um, conditions that make you weaker to fight this virus. And so I think that when you put all those things together, it makes us um, an easier target for the virus, which is why I think you see the rates higher here. I mean, Michigan as a whole, I think, is third behind New York and New Jersey, maybe fourth if you behind Washington out of the 50 states. Um, so it's, it's bleak. I mean, I think that the leadership of our major hospital systems in partnership with our, our you know, elected leadership are doing the best they can in trying to work with uh, Washington, trying to work with private purveyors of the PPE and the ventilators to get what they can. And we can only, you know, we got to take, it's every day at a time. I mean, I find myself watching uh, Andrew uh, Cuomo's daily briefing um, as if it were national news, but he does a good job. And it's kind of, I think, a forecast of what's to come for everybody else. And so you've got Andrew Cuomo at noon, you got Mayor Duggan at three, and then, you know, whenever the, the leader in the White House comes on, you, you got him and every day, it, it's worse. And then you hear Dr. Fauci saying that he can't believe that there's all these states still out there that haven't enacted the stay at home uh, directive. It's just you wonder what people are thinking. I mean, lessons should be learned from, you know, what we've seen happen, particularly in New York and what we're ha what's happening in Detroit and what's happening in New Orleans. 
So I'm not really sure why a lot of these other states are are, are, are not jumping all over this the way that you know we are and others are. Are you, are you pretty? Uh, are you? What rating would you give uh, Governor Whitmer for handling so far the crisis? I mean, it's interesting because normally when you give a rating that you have some some comparative set by which to provide that rating. Um, and I don't really know what that comparative set is. I mean, the only comparison that I can make that I see on a daily basis is that with Governor Cuomo's doing. And so I would really put her with what she has to work with at par with him. So I don't know if that's an eight, eight and a half, nine. I, I don't know what a 10 looks like because so many things are out of your control. We only we have a limited number of hospital beds in the state of Michigan. We have a limited amount of ventilators being doled off by the federal government. You can't, the stuff, people are getting a mask, which probably costs less than a dollar. States are bidding for each other and they're paying five, six, seven dollars for masks because they can't send their people out to battle this without the proper equipment. And so, you know, it's a matter of you got to lead, you got to negotiate, you got to pe- keep people calm, but at the same time, try to get people to be cautious. It's it's a tremendous balancing act, and not only our governor, but any elected officials trying to trying to balance right now. Yeah, when you're when you're watching for what the weather's going to be, you watch Chicago, and you know in two days it's going to be here in Detroit. Right. You watch New York in this COVID nineteen, and you know that in a week, uh, whatever's going on in New York is going to be here in Michigan because we're trending so high. Uh, we're we're going to look a lot like New York looks, uh, and so when I see the the governor in New York give those daily press conferences, uh, I watch really closely because I think that's a good indicator of what we are going to see here in Michigan because we're trending so high. And I watched the governor's town hall meeting and not that a lot of uh, new information came out of it necessarily, but I thought it was reassuring just to to know that she is on top of the issues. She's aware of uh, the potential things that uh, are coming our way. And and it, it's just good to be at home and know that the, the leaders are, are on the job. Yeah, I would say, I mean, you know, from time to time, I'll get out just to, you know, provide a little sanity and just will drive around. And it's dead, which is phenomenal. I mean, there's nobody out in the streets. You do see people walking around the park or jogging or bike riding, which is permissible. Um, And they're either by themselves or with obviously a family member or a sibling or something. And so I think that the state may be a little bit late, but everybody is falling in line with the directive now. And I think if everybody stays home and stays safe, that we will get hopefully hit the, the peak of this soon and start coming out of it. Um, it's, it's, it's with the hospitals though, unfortunately, again, I mean, these 900 beds at, at uh, TCF, I think are, are phenomenal, but I think that those are going to fill up soon and they're going to be looking for other such venues to fill up. Yeah. That, that whole, that whole thing, you know, they, they scrapped the auto show to, and now it's a field hospital. I mean, it feels surreal. It feels like we're like a war, like back in the back in the World War One or two, and they had to turn things into hospitals like that. It's um, it's insane. Let me tell you, there's a you guys have probably seen it. Uh, I think it was called Contagion, maybe. But oh, it was, I saw it. Hoffman was a star, and it was like the monkey, and they traced it all the way back to a casino. Mm-hmm. And people sneezing in a casino floor, and you thought that that was fiction. That was a fictional movie when it came out 15 or 20 years ago, and that's exactly what's happening now. So it was, it was only nine years ago. Oh, nine, okay. 2011, Gwyneth Paltrow, Matt Damon, my girlfriend made me watch it in the last three weeks, 
big mistake. <laughs> I wanted to go out there and buy all kinds of guns and right, right. afraid for my life. And there was a bat that dropped food to a pig. And then the Chinese restaurant owner picked up the, you know, touched the right. pig and touched Gwyneth Paltrow. And then she went on and infected the whole world. But they were using words in 2011, like social distancing, which I had never heard until mm -hmm. this. They were, I mean, if, if, if you're a glutton for punishment, go rent that movie. <laughs> But it's the other scary. thing that comes out of this is that it's, it's very unfortunate things that you don't think about normally, like the way that you know, we all know that there's disparate, um, the disparate nature of education in the country, but in the state of Michigan. And everyone always talks about, you know, the, the school district in Detroit, the kid gets 7000 and some change, but it's twice or more than twice that in Bloomfield Hills. We all hear that. And you but you, this really is exemplifying um how that really takes effect because, you know, if you heard what the governor said yesterday, she talked about, well, we're gonna, we're gonna come up with these packets because, you know, some kids don't have computers and they don't have access to internet. Um, my kids, she made that announcement like on a Thursday or Friday and my kids were doing online learning Monday, tests, quizzes, homework, gym homework, art homework, all their core classes. And it hasn't, have not missed a beat. But everyone's kids are not in that position. And so, I mean, coming out of this, we are so far behind in how our educational system, K through 12, is embracing technology, is embracing distant learning, and is, is nowhere near whatever is the, uh, the North Star um, as it relates to this. And so we, I hopefully our educational leaders and how we fund education um, coming out of this, people will pay more attention to this issue. You know, I, I listen, I, I'm a, my mom's a teacher. I'm a huge supporter of the system, Detroit system, the backpacks. Thank you but, for that too. I, I do know that. Great my work. My pleasure. This year, somebody suggested, you know, cause the backpacks may not be able to got, you know, be, be put together in time this year. Cause we usually order them. I may put that money towards, uh, you know, N ninety fives and ventilators and things right. like that. I, I'd love to talk to you about that offline. Absolutely. Um, but um, where was I going with that? The education system. Mm -hmm. I have a six. I have a sixth grader and I have a senior in high school. Mm -hmm. And the innovation for schools has not been there as quickly as I would like. Mm -hmm. You know, now that they've shut down the system, you know, they're not in class. I don't know, you know, where your kids are going to school, but from eight to three. There's so little structure right now. I wish that they would, I wish I could put my kid in front of a, a screen mm -hmm. or a cable channel where, you know, most people have something to go to bath and, go, you know, go do their gym homework or do some exercise and give them some structure. Cause I'm not equipped to do it. I'm trying. Right. And, and it's so hard that I, I agree with you, Denny, that I hope that something changes in this because, you know, there, there should, I'm not seeing the innovation in this area yet. Well, I think hopefully two things will happen. Hopefully districts will understand that they, this will illustrate and highlight just how far behind and how ill-prepared we were. But secondly, I hope that federal and state education regulation will mandate that there be a plan. So we got, a, we got all schools have plans for active shooters. We don't have plans for what if you can't go to school. And so it should be mandated that schools have plans as part of how they're, when they get, have their regulation and they have to go through and get their stamp of approval, 
part of it has to be what is your plan for distant learning? Snow days. This could change everything. I mean, you know, not listen, snow days, we all love snow days, but this is a pretty darn long snow day. Right. And uh, hopefully, hopefully they'll get they'll get more organized and, uh, um, you know, we'll, we'll figure that out. But I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today, Denny. I've learned a lot. Appreciate taking My pleasure, man. advantage of your uh, knowledge. And hopefully you'll come back uh, soon. Assuming uh, Kevin doesn't do anything to piss you off, you'll come back and visit us. No, I wouldn't do that. And let me just say that, you know, for you um, uh, being a, a fellow counselor, but not one that practices, I've admired how you've built your practice. And as you've built your practice and been successful, you've done more and more for the community. And a lot of that is targeted. I don't know if it's all of it, but it seems like the majority is targeted towards Detroit school kids. And so... You know, on behalf of Detroit, I say thank you. And, you know, Kevin, thank you for years as a journalist, um, bringing a lot of things to light that are important for the community. And so hopefully in this new part of your career through your podcast and your other outlets, you're able to continue to, to do the same. I appreciate that. All right, Denny. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Don't hang up yet because I'm going to talk to you when we end this. But thanks for being here today. All right. You got it. Thank you.